Paul writes, We are Jews by nature, but not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ, and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. But if, while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. For if I rebuild what I once have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live by faith, live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and delivered himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we are blessed to be able to have your word which is food for our souls, is that which nourishes us, helping us to understand that which we would never figure out on our own. We thank you that you have blessed us with the opportunity to be a people who are instructed and helped and trained by the word of God, that we might be adequate, equipped for every good work, so, Lord, we pray that you would use your word in that way, offer encouragement to those who need it, offer rebuke to those who need to be uh, offered a correction from the thinking or beliefs that they have thus far had, and we pray, Lord, that you might point us all to Christ, and may our hearts be filled with wonder, amazement, and love for him. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Family skirmishes are usually best left in private. Very few people are going to benefit from listening to two, so two um, various members of a family air out their differences in public. This is particularly true regarding brothers and sisters in Christ. What can possibly be gained when two church members get into a public face-to-face showdown. Worse yet, what about two church leaders opposing each other of all places at a church fellowship supper? But that's what we have in in Galatians chapter 2. So I ask the question, why would the Apostle Paul include in his letter to the churches in Galatia for all of them to read a detailed summary of a quote-unquote church fight that he and the Apostle Peter had sometime earlier in Antioch. We make, need to make a couple things clear as we try to think of an answer to that question. First of all, we need to make sure we understand the confrontation recorded here in chapter 2 of Galatians. It was not a fist fight. So don't picture that kind of scene in your mind. This is not a knockdown, drag-out fight, people throwing chairs and whatever. 
Paul was passionately defending the gospel of grace from his fellow Jewish believers who had withdrawn from other believers who are Gentile in background because these other folks did not abide by the Jewish customs and practices. And so Paul just refused to sit back idly while the church was being divided into two churches, a Jewish church over here and a Gentile church over here. A church on the one hand which would proclaim the gospel of Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. And then there would be another church over here he's concerned about that's proclaiming a different gospel. A, a gospel that is proclaiming Christ plus works. A gospel that says Christ plus the performance of pious deeds which must be done. Or, 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 or the gospel that says Christ plus keeping of the law. So the reason that Paul publicly opposed Peter and then wrote about the incident in his epistle to the Galatians was to make clear that the gospel of grace alone is worth fighting for. It is worth defending from those who, with their teaching or perhaps by their patterns of life, they compromise the one and only gospel of grace. So Paul's concern, you must understand this, he is not concerned with himself in this battle. He is concerned not with some matter of differences of opinions here. His concern, as he wrote verse 14, he said there, we looked at last week, his concern that Peter and the other leaders were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. That's a problem. And in view of that concern, Paul then said, okay, I'm going to make my case here. I'm going to speak it to your face. I'm going to speak it in such a way that other people can hear what I'm saying. And we're continuing on with what Paul said in the middle of this skirmish, if you will, that took place in Antioch. He is emphasizing that the gospel of grace alone, apart from works of the law, is what we need to unify around and live out the implications of that. So what is Paul going to emphasize in his little talk there? What were his main chief concerns? Well, he laid out, first of all, a succinct statement that summarizes his position about how a person gains acceptance before God. He just sort of summarizes that clearly, succinctly. And then he went, goes on, and he's going to refute an, an argument that he's heard likely put forward by those who would say, no, we believe in the gospel plus, or the Christ plus type of gospel. He's going to say, wait a minute, I want to speak to one of their arguments and the objections that they're going to raise because I've heard it a number of times. So he, he speaks to that, and then he also argue, offers his own argument as to why the false gospel of Christ plus works is incompatible with Christianity. So, that's the general outline of where we're going here this morning. So let's start off with Paul's statement. The clear statement regarding justification on the basis of grace alone. Verse 16. You see, Peter knew the basics of the gospel. He knows about gospel of grace. And that's why Paul deliberately is now going to, in this statement, he's going to quote-unquote overstate the case. He's not going to say it once, he's not going to say it twice, he's going to say it three times. If you'll notice in verse 16, the word justified is repeated three times. Do we have a theme here? Do we have an emphasis here? I think we do. And so he's going to make clear that his case that those who are listening to him, who are just observers, and those who are the leaders themselves, Peter and Barnabas and others, they're going to understand the truth about how sinners truly are, are gain a right standing with God. 
it has to do with this issue of justification. And so Paul makes his statement, generally speaking, he starts off in that way. Then secondly, he's going to make it as something that's personally true. He's going to talk from his own experience, likely trying to draw out Peter's experience as well. And then thirdly, he's going to talk about a universal truth. This is something that applies to everybody. All found in verse 16. So he starts right there, first of all, then with a general, non-specific affirmation. A man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Now what does it mean by this idea of justified? Let me give you a definition uh, from Jerry Bridges, a helpful quote I came across from his book, Gospel in Real Life, Gospel for Real Life. And this is, he said this, Justification is God's declaration that we are righteous before him. But to expand on that and to help clarify what we mean by that, let's think of it this way. To be justified is to be declared right with the judge, God the judge. It has a sense of a legal pronouncement that takes place in a courtroom. And the justification then refers to a person who, despite the fact that they indeed are guilty on many, 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 many counts of breaking the laws of God, that God nonetheless declares that person, God the judge declares that person not guilty. Why? Because that person has placed his or her faith, his or her trust in the substitute that God provided, the sinless one who bore that person's punishment on the cross, Jesus Christ. That's what, that's what justification means. To be justified is to be a condemned sinner who is credited with Jesus' perfect record of righteous living on the basis of grace. It is a gift that is given to them, undeserved, unbought, unmerited. It is received simply by faith. Now, Paul elsewhere explains justification by using a verse, for example, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, where he says, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. It's the idea of the exchange. Our guilt and shame is put upon Christ. His righteousness is put onto our account. Even more clear, and I'd suggest you turn just a few pages back to Romans chapter 4, if you look at verse 4 and 5 of Romans, Paul makes this strong case using Abraham. I'm not going to take a lot of time to unpack this. I'll let my brother Steve maybe unpack more of this next week. Um, chapter 4 of Romans, verse 5, page 1342, Paul emphasizes this element of not earning merit, but those who are justified are ones who are believing in Christ. That's the only way to really be justified, declared right with God. He says in verse 4, Now to the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as a favor, but as what is due. In other words, if you're trying to do things to earn right standing with God, then you've earned it. It's a wage. It's something you have coming to you because you you deserve it. But notice the contrast now that he's emphasizing about being justified on the basis of faith. He says, but, verse 5, But to the one who does not work, but believes in him, that is Jesus, who justifies the ungodly, not the people who do all the good things, the ungodly, his faith is credited 
as righteousness. So this is how God deals with any sinner who fully relies and trusts in Jesus alone to secure the blessings of being in a good standing before God. So Paul goes on to remind Peter in this general statement, don't forget the basics. It's true in a general way. We're only justified on the basis of faith and on the basis of grace. But then Paul goes on and reminds Peter and says, wait a minute, all all of you gathered in Antioch, you've got to remember, we share a mutual standing here together. We stand before God not based on our performance, not based on our devotion to keeping the Mosaic law, but we stand together in the sense that we are only trusting in Christ and his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead. And so Paul then gives this personal affirmation. He says there in verse 16, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ. Notice the emphasis on we. He's talking about himself and his audience there. Paul knew firsthand the unspeakable blessing of gaining right standing before God as a free gift through faith in Jesus. The gospel had set him free from a life in which he had been making striving and putting so much energy and time and effort into somehow vain attempts to gain his own righteousness, a self-righteousness, by his diligent efforts more and more and more and keeping rules and keeping regulations and keeping all these things that he has to do and not just do them halfway well, but do them very well every day. The gospel had set him free from all that and now he did not, he does not refer to the gospel of grace alone as some sort of just an idea that he thinks about in his mind. He's referring to the gospel of grace as something that has transformed his life. It has taken him in a radically different direction in his whole existence. And so he's speaking from the fact that he was granted forgiveness from the sins of his past, which he is extremely ashamed about. He was destroying the church of Jesus Christ, doing what he could to oppose Christ. He was blaspheming, he was violent, he was out of control. So all of his past, he is just amazed that all of that has now been forgiven. He now enjoys this unspeakable privilege of being a a herald for Christ, due not to the fact that he's better than everybody else, but because of Jesus' blood that was shed for him on that cross, and not to this zeal in keeping all of the traditions associated with the law, which he refers to there in chapter 1, verse 14. You see, faith is not affirming certain truths about Jesus in our minds. It's not just saying, oh, I believe that certain facts are true about Jesus. I want you to notice clearly here, Faith has to do with something that is personally, that has affected us and begin to really claim our lives so that Paul says he doesn't just talk about a fact out there. Jesus died on that cross. What does he say there in chapter 2, verse 20? He says, Christ loved me and gave himself for me. Faith in that sense is not just saying, I believe certain things are true about Jesus. I believe that he died on a Roman cross, and therefore his life was, came to an awful end. Even the demons and the devil would probably concur. Yeah, that happened. That's not saving faith. Saving faith is the act of renunciation, that I am renouncing 
that there's any confidence I have in any good works that I possibly could do is going to give me acceptance before a holy God. And along with that, there is the commitment and the, the surrender of myself and the placing of my full reliance and trust and confidence in Christ. And I'm running to Christ saying, the only way I can find refuge from the wrath of God is relying on Christ and what he did for me on that cross and, and saying, Lord Jesus, give me your mercy because I don't deserve it. And that's what Paul, that's what Paul did. That's what Peter had done. He's calling them back to that, that time in their life where this was a precious truth, a life-changing truth. Paul and Peter had believed into Jesus. Their hearts and their lives had been set free from that heavy weight that heavy burden of trying to keep the rules, trying to improve yourself, trying to somehow earn enough merit so that I can lift my head and look at God and somehow find that I can at least sit in His presence without being ashamed. Have you experienced that, my friend? Can you say, Jesus loved me and gave Himself for me? Or is it just a concept that other people talk about and that you politely tip your hat to and say, yeah, it must be true, but it's never changed your heart and life? Paul said, you've got to go back and realize this is a life-changing truth. Thirdly, I think Paul also is saying in this statement, he wants to make sure that he reminds Peter and I think Barnabas and others that are listening there that the gospel of grace is not only generally true, it's also, of course, personally true for them and their experience, but look at this. Thirdly, it is universally true. Universally true. He gives a universal affirmation. That's the last part of 16, verse 16, where Paul writes, Since by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. No flesh. What's he talking about there? Well, he's citing here a verse from the Hebrew Scriptures. He is referring to Psalm 143, verse 2. And he's using that as a proof to show that all flesh, which would mean all mankind without exception, regardless of your background, whether you're Jew or Gentile, whoever you are, everyone is incapable of gaining your justification before God by performing some sort of works from the law. No one is capable of keeping the law perfectly every hour of every day, all through your life. You're not going to do it. No one can do it other than Christ. And the only way anyone ever is declared right with God is on the basis of grace alone. Apart from any merit, apart from any attempts to somehow become a better rule keeper than the other guy who sits on your right or left or in front of you or behind you. Now what does this have to do with us? I ask these questions. Who are you trusting in to gain acceptance before a holy God? Are you relying upon your performance? Are you relying upon your efforts to do what's right or to avoid what's wrong? And you sort of keep track and say, well, this is sort of a C-minus C week. I didn't do too well this week. Uh, this is sort of a D-minus D week. Or this was a B-plus week. Look at those things. Oh, I did that pretty well. What are you relying on to provide you with right standing before God? What is your hope of gaining full and complete forgiveness 
and being what is called well-pleasing before God. That is, there's nothing to hold your head in shame about. There's nothing that says you cannot enjoy God. There's nothing that would say you could not be in God's presence and, and have an open heart before him, expressing whatever's in your heart and mind. See, the gospel of grace insists that Jesus was delivered over and gave himself up because of our transgressions, and he was raised from the dead because of our justification. I wonder if you've really fully transferred your trust. No longer trusting in yourself, relying on your own worthless attempts to sort of offer God payment for your sins. Have you turned your back on that? My friend, that's a very important step in beginning to walk the path of the Christian life. You've got to stop trying to become a better person just to find acceptance and forgiveness before God. Instead, by faith, you extend the empty hands of faith and say, Lord Jesus, I'm going to receive a gift I don't deserve. I can't understand why you would give it to me. I don't understand what it is in your heart that you would choose to extend it to someone as a wretched sinner as I am, but I am going to extend my hands in faith because I desperately need to be forgiven before you. And that priceless gift of justification on the basis of faith, my friend, that is the most treasured gift, most valuable gift you'll ever receive. Do you know what it is to enjoy peace with God, the Bible says? Because that's what it means. If you're justified, you're going to enjoy peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 5.1. Do you ever come boldly through the throne of grace? and deal with God on the basis of grace, and you come to God and you say, well, Lord, you know, in your mind, I had a really C-minus week, I had a D-plus week in terms of how well I've really done what I should have done, or I I did a lot of things I shouldn't have done, but I'm going to approach God now, even though those things, I can come boldly to the throne of grace, not of judgment, throne of grace, so that what? You might find grace and help in time of need. Justified people do that. Because it's not based on their performance. It's based on what Christ has done. Therefore, they're coming on the base of grace. I need help. I need grace. I come in the name of Jesus and him alone. Not in me and my, my abilities and what I've accomplished or not accomplished for you. I can come without shame. I can come without feeling that I've got to be a better person for me to be able to say anything to God. That's grace, my friend. You can come to God without wondering if he's going to greet you with that terrible wagging finger, that many of us, that's the only image we have of God. It's the wagging finger. Shame, shame, shame on you. And that's, so we say, I don't want to come to God and get the wagging finger, so I'm just not going to even come. My friend, do you understand? Paul's saying here, don't you understand the gospel of grace alone is that you come with all of your failings, with all of your tragedies, with all the things that you regret, You come and you say, Lord Jesus, I come on the basis of grace because my trust is in Christ. He did for me what I cannot do and I've received what I don't deserve. I come. I come for grace. My friend, if you don't know that in your heart, I I don't want to say I want to fight you about it, but it's worth fighting over. It's worth getting alone with God until you read the scriptures long enough, until you pray long enough, until you understand that is the gospel of grace alone. And apart from that, There is no peace and joy in life. 
All right, let's move to point number two here. I don't think we should be here till four o'clock today, but I tell you, it's tempting. All right, here we go. Beginning in verse 17, there's a shift in what Paul says. He moves now to arguments. He has two arguments relating to justification on the basis of grace alone. First of all, he's looking at the objection from legalists. But if, while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. Here Paul then confronts these church leaders, Peter and others, and he says they're not being straightforward with the gospel, so I'm going to be straightforward with the gospel, and I'm going to anticipate the fact that they're going to throw at me these crazy objections. And one of them is going to be what? Well, he's trying to persuade these legalists, and the legalists kept raising the issue that if grace was emphasized, like I just did, if grace continually is emphasized, it's a free gift, you're standing before God on the basis of what Christ did, not what you've done, and you're not emphasizing the works of the law as important responsibilities in order to gain acceptance before God, he says the result is going to be, according to these legalists, hey man, you're lessening the importance of the moral law and one's moral responsibility before God, and isn't that going to result in the view that this gospel of grace alone, isn't that a dangerous teaching? Isn't that a dangerous doctrine that's going to encourage people to just sort of live however you want? doesn't make any difference. Here's a good helpful summary by John Stott as he tries to summarize the argument that these legalists probably are throwing around. It's this. If God justifies bad people, what is the point of being good? Okay. And the gospel of grace, they would say, promotes the idea of doing as we like and living as we please. It's all about grace, man. Hey, who cares? I stand in grace. By the way, if you want a helpful explanation of this, read Romans 6. Don't have time to get into all that either. Okay. What's the best response then to the objection? What does Paul say? Does the gospel of grace promote ungodly living? Does it promote moral compromise in a person's life if you really understand the gospel of grace alone? Paul's answer, look at there, verse 17, may it never be. Or you could say in vernacular today, no way, no way, that's ridiculous, come on. Think about it, he's saying. The gospel of grace alone brings about a change not only in our status before God, which means that we go from being a person who's an enemy of God, and the gospel of grace says, I am now forgiven, Christ paid all that, now I'm at the status where what? I am now adopted as a child of God, and now I've received all the benefits, privileges, and even the name of being a child of God, I'm now a member of the family of God, and therefore I enjoy a status that says, I am welcome, loved, and I receive the benefits that come with being a member of the family. I don't know about you, but I've heard some stories now about adoption that are just blowing my socks off just to think about what goes on in this remarkable expression of, or or picture of what God's love is like to us. As you know, many of you know, uh, Tim's sister, my daughter, both are working in this orphanage in Quito, Ecuador, and for his children, and uh, 
there have been a number of adoptions and families come and they, they stay there for several weeks and they're introduced to the child. The child anticipates their coming and the child knows that and they say, here is your forever family. And there have been pictures showing these little children who've been living in orphanage for who knows how many years running into the arms of this man and woman and whoever it is that have come there. Other children sometimes are part of it. And there is this embrace there is this welcoming, there is this amazing privilege for the fact that this orphan now is now going to say, I have a family. I'm one of these people. My status has changed. I'm no longer an orphan. I'm now a child adopted in this family. That's what the gospel of grace says. So we know that we are in a radically new status. But also, there is, and along with that, and this is in your notes, the radical change of nature. See, Paul is going to remind them that, listen, my nature has changed inside of me so that I died to the law as a means of gaining acceptance before God. When he trusted in Christ, verse 19, man, I'm done with all that. I'm not trying to earn anything anymore. I am now amazed that my heart has been changed and my status has been changed. I've died to my old way of living, trying to outperform everybody else with all sorts of rule keeping, rules upon rules upon rules. He says, the gospel of grace declares that those who believe upon Christ, according to 2 Corinthians 5.17, we are new creations. What does that mean? That means I'm changed. (laughs) I'm not the way I used to be. I am not a person who's motivated primarily out of fear and guilt. I am now a person who's motivated out of love and a sense of amazement of what I've received in the gospel of Christ. So the gospel of grace, my friend, is powerful. It imparts to me a new heart. Heart of stone is changed into a heart of flesh. Again, I say, look at verse 20 of chapter 2. As Paul says what? Christ lives in me. You talk about change, my friend. You have the living Christ by the power, through the presence of the Holy Spirit, taking up residence in you so that everywhere you go, everything you do, all of your life now is lived with Christ in you. If you don't think that's amazing, then you haven't really thought much deep, very deeply about the gospel. It changes you radically. That doesn't mean you stop sinning. I'm not suggesting that. I'm saying you are not the same person you used to be in terms of your nature. Therefore, Paul is arguing here that the gospel of grace also brings about this inner transformation that we share in the death of Christ by faith. So that when Christ died, we, in a sense, by faith, were joined to that death, and we too died to our old way of living. And in the gospel, we also are joined by faith to Christ and his resurrection, and we are also raised to newness of life to a new way of living. Why? Because Christ is operating in me and I'm so joined to Christ that I now take part in the benefits of what he's uh, accomplished for me. So by faith, we're joined to his resurrection. This is all Romans 6. I'll just again repeat it to you. Romans 6, verse 1. Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Paul says, no, no, may it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? 
Or do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ, have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with Christ. Here's that union with him. So that we ourselves, we were buried as if it were at the same time he was buried. We were buried in the sense that through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we might walk or we might live in newness of life. That's huge. That means that the gospel of grace does not encourage and promote people to just live in any old way they want to. It means that we are so joined to Christ that we now are living in a new way because Christ is living in us in a new way. The gospel does not promote or encourage sinful living. It does the opposite. Since Jesus suffered our punishment on the cross and he freely bestows upon us a new standing before him, as forgiven children of God adopted by him on the basis of grace alone. His selfless love motivates us to yearn for holiness, to yearn for heaven, to yearn to say, I want to live my life to please you. I'm so thankful for all you've done for me. Which is why Paul says, Christ loved me. He gave himself for me. So I give myself to you. It's not going to lead to wild, crazy, sinful living. The life we live as believers is lived for God. And the gospel of grace confronts our tendency to live for our own selfish fulfillment so that we read in 2 Corinthians 5 that the love of Christ constrains or controls believers so that they live no longer for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. 2 Corinthians 5.15. A couple questions. Are you motivated to live for Jesus out of a love for him? Or are you motivated to live for Jesus because you feel guilty and you feel like you're not measuring up and you're trying your best to improve yourself so that you think that Jesus would actually love you? It's a big difference, my friend. Big difference. We live for Christ in response to his selfless love. How about this question? Is your motivation to live out the Christian life primarily built around a sense of guilt or duty or obligation? I gotta, I gotta, I have to. See, grace makes all the difference. Makes all the difference in why we live the the way we live as followers of Jesus. And so Paul takes that thing and he just completely obliterates that argument. Okay, now we've got to move on now to his challenge, which I think is even more and similarly important and and, uh, significant. He offers one final argument, the last verse, verse 21, for defending the gospel of grace by challenging his legalistic critics. He wants them to think about the the issue that he's emphasized here on there they keep insisting that you could be justified on the basis of trusting in jesus plus good works so he's going to speak to that and he says that okay if you keep insisting on that if you keep insisting that salvation comes because you've got to earn some merit along the way he says you're actually undermining the foundation of christianity you say well how's that i sort of like to compare it to this Imagine if you were tasked with the responsibility of building a skyscraper. Let's say, 
let's make it 100 stories. So suppose you say, all right, I have, the, I have all of the sketches, I have all the architectural plans, I have all the materials here, they're all here, I've got a big crew of people that are willing to invest months and months and months to help make this happen, I've got plenty of financing to do it, and all I need is a piece of land. So the piece of land that you're given to build this skyscraper on happens to be located in Florida, and it happens to be located in a piece of land, and track of land, which there's a sinkhole right below five feet of soil in that particular piece of property. How long do you think that skyscraper is going to last? It's going to be worse than a leaning tire of Pisa, let me tell you. It won't even get off the ground. It will be in the ground, and that's all. The point here is this. Paul says, listen, if you're going to put this gospel of saying you believe in trusting in Jesus, but you've got to do all these extra things, justifying yourself by your good works, he says, listen here, you do not need a Savior to die on the cross if you've got to do all this saving of yourself. So that's the third point. That's the last point. None of us needs a Savior to die on a cross if it's up to us to improve ourselves. If we can gain right standing with God by a performance of pious deeds, then the cross of Christ is superfluous. It is unnecessary, and therefore Jesus' redemptive rescue mission was worthless. We don't need that because we're going to do it ourselves as we trust in him. Embracing the gospel of grace alone means that we must reject all attempts to earn our standing before God. And everyone who sings about Jesus' love demonstrate on that cross on a Sunday, but who focuses primarily on your failings throughout the week to maintain an exemplary pattern in your life, to use the means of grace, that is, I've got to pray and I've got to read the word, I've got to witness and I've got to be a part of the fellowship of the church, I've got to, these things I need to be doing. If you are constantly preaching yourself, I'm failing, I'm failing, I'm failing, my friend, you need to preach yourself the gospel of grace alone. It's Christ that is your hope, not your performance. And if we are constantly comparing ourselves to other believers and we're saying, oh, wait a minute, you know, that guy, they get up, he gets up at 4.30 in the morning. And he goes to take a prayer walk. Or this person over here just led their neighbor to Christ. And you're constantly comparing yourself to how someone else is serving Christ or following Christ or whatever. Or how long they had their devotions that week. My friend, if you are constantly looking to them and saying, I'm not measuring up, I've got to try harder, you're going to lack joy, hope, and peace, and the consolation that is to be found in the gospel of grace alone. You're not going to have it. Because why? Because your focus is all on yourself, rather than on Christ. If we assume that our righteousness must be continually proven by our successes in our prayer life, or our devotional life, or our witnessing effectiveness, we've lost sight of the grace of God. The gospel of grace points us to the free, unmerited gift of Jesus' righteousness imputed or placed on our account as sinners like you and me. And the gifts of the grace that we receive in the gospel, which is a new status, a new identity, a new relationship with God, are worth more, listen to me now, those things are worth more than all of the gold in Fort Knox. And gold is trading pretty high right now, folks. And that, that Fort Knox has got thousands and thousands of bars of gold. You want to be rich. 
then I suggest that you try to understand and plumb the depths and put your whole heart and soul into understanding, applying, and claiming the riches found in the gospel of grace alone in Jesus Christ alone. They are freely bestowed to the person who comes admitting that you are spiritually bankrupt, that you, all you have to offer God is your sin and shame. And the gospel of grace points us continually to the cross of Christ and his empty tomb because Jesus paid a debt that we owed and he gave us what we didn't deserve. He took our guilt and our shame and instead he gives us his robes of righteousness. And anyone who adopts the false gospel of legalism is a fool. You deny the nature of God, that is, he is a gracious God, and you also reject the mission as to why Jesus came. And Paul summarizes that in these words. Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am chief. That is the gospel. Let's pray. Oh, how my heart, Lord, is so heavy today. Thinking, Lord, how long I know my own heart was too focused on myself, and it still does at days where I get so focused on my own failings, my own weaknesses, my own shortcomings, my own fears. Lord, surely all of us can relate to that on some level. It's easy to get focused on not measuring up. Lord, I pray again, forgive me for those things. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you invite us to come into your presence. A throne of grace is what we find when we come through Jesus Christ, the one who died for us, gave himself for us, who loved us enough to do that, who was raised for our justification. Father, I pray that the gospel of grace alone will melt away for many of us a heavy weight of guilt, a heavy load of comparing ourselves to other people, of trying to measure up, of trying to improve ourselves. Lord, I pray that you would take that burden from us. And I pray that you might cause all of us to humbly turn our backs upon this attempt on our part to get to a place where we are better people so that we might feel more worthy to be loved by you. And I pray, Lord, we might embrace the gospel of grace alone and treasure the fact that we are given a new status and a new nature and new privileges on the basis not of how we perform, but of what Christ did and what he is to us in the gospel. Lord, I pray that there might be a part among all of us today a profound sense of knowing personally the depth and breadth and width and height that the love of Christ has for us as individuals. And Lord, may that melt away any resistance to him and surrendering to him and committing to him and having our faith only in him and then wanting to live for him, not because we have to and because we're trying to measure up, but because, Lord, we don't know anything else to do but to give ourselves to you once again, amazed by your grace. So Lord, I pray for a precious time now around the table of 
that you invite us to as we preach the gospel to ourselves. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.